Good morning, I'm Wimala, and today is Tuesday, May the 3rd, and it's a rainy, overcast day here. I think we try not to complain as much about the rain these days because it's helping end the drought that, that we've had in this area, and there are so many other places in the world that could use use this water. But it's still kind of gray and <laughs> not an inviting day. So I was going to read today the last reading that we'll do, although there's some there's a lot that we haven't read in Gil Fronsdale's book, The Issue at Hand. And they're essays on Buddhist mindfulness practice. And his appendix is on Theravada, the way of liberation, and he's writing about Theravada Buddhism, just basic writings. And I'd like to just read a little bit of it. And he goes into quite a few, quite a few topics, so maybe I'll skip around and read some of these that are interesting. So this is the appendix in his book, and this is the chapter, this is the appendix called Theravada, the Way of Liberation. Theravada, literally, literally the word means the teachings of the elders, is an ancient Buddhist tradition that has nurtured practices and teachings of wisdom. I had to silence that that has nurtured practices and teachings of wisdom, love, and liberation for over 2,000 years. Liberation, the pivotal point around which the tradition revolves, is a deep seeing into and participation in the reality of things as they are, the world we live in when seen without the filters of greed, hatred, and delusion with the ever-present, timeless immediacy of things as they are. As a central reference point, the Theravada school is a fluid and varied tradition evolving in response to the particular personal, historical, and cultural circumstances of those who participate in it. Today, there are over 100 million Theravada Buddhists in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. Currently, the three most influential Theravada countries are Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka, and it is from these countries that the tradition has come to the West. Theravada Buddhism in North America Since the 1960s, the the Theravada tradition has slowly but surely found a home in North America. The two major turning points for its establishment here were the founding in 1966 of the first American Buddhist vihara, or monastic temple, by the Sri Lankan Buddhist community in Washington, D.C., and ten years later the establishment of the Vipassana Meditation in Bari, Massachusetts, known as the Insight Meditation Society, IMS. 
These two centers represent two divergent and distinct forms that Theravada Buddhism has taken in the North America, in North America, namely the monastic center traditions and temples of the Southeast Asian immigrant groups on the one hand, and on the other, the lay-centered Vipassana movement, made up mostly of Americans of European descent. The former tend to be fairly conservative, replicating in America the various forms of Buddhism found in their native countries. The latter take a more liberal and experimental approach in finding ways Theravada Buddhism can be adapted to its lay-based American setting. The newest form of Theravada Buddhism in the United States fits into neither of these categories. It is represented by monastic centers run and supported predominantly by Euro-Americans. An example is a Bayagiri monastery founded by the English monk Ajahn Amaro in 1996 in Redwood Valley, California. In addition to other monastic centers, Metta Forest Monastery in San Diego County, California, and the Bhavana Society in Highview, West Virginia, are making monastic practice available to Westerns while remaining firmly connected to their traditional Asian communities. Within these centers, we, we could well be seeing the beginnings of an American version of Theravada monasticism. Considered an ideal lifestyle for study, practice, service, and the purification of the heart, monasticism has long been a cornerstone of the Theravada tradition. However, in the 20th century, and especially in the modern West, the full range of Theravada meditation practices has been made available to the laity in an unprecedented manner. This being the case, monasticism is no longer seen as the sole carrier of the tradition, although it remains an anchor and a force of preservation. In Theravada Buddhism will eventually—I had a disconnect. It will probably exhibit at least as much diversity as it does in its Southeast Asian homeland. Perhaps it will even stretch the boundaries of what has traditionally defined it. Basic teachings. The Buddha encouraged people not to believe blindly, but to come and see for themselves. Consequently, his teachings emphasize practice rather than belief or doctrine. In this spirit, many Theravadan practices are awareness practices, simply simple in themselves, but powerful in their sustained application. In addition, the tradition also teaches practices to strengthen generosity, service, ethics, loving-kindness, compassion, and right livelihood. These practices nurture the growth of an awakened and liberated heart and help us to live wisely and compassionately. The Theravada tradition traces its practices and teachings back to the historical Buddha, while the Buddha has been the object of great veneration, the tradition has, down through the centuries, maintained that the Buddha was human. Through 
that the Buddha was human, someone who pointed out the path of practice that others may follow. The Theravada school preserves much of its collection of the Buddha's teaching in a large body of scriptures or suttas written in Pali, the Theravada equivalent of church Latin. These remarkable texts contain highly revered and thorough descriptions of practices, ethics, psychology, and teachings on the spiritual life. They also contain a strong warning not to give up one's own judgment in favor of the tradition and its text, as well as a warning about simply following one's own judgment without listening to others. In the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha says that in deciding the truth or falsity of spiritual teachings, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reflection on reasons, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think the ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, these things are blamable, these things are censored by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, and lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. But when you know for yourself these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to welfare and happiness, then you should engage in them. A key reason for such a pragmatic criterion for determining spiritual truth or falsehood is that the Buddha was not particularly interested in establishing correct metaphysical views. He was more concerned with pointing out how to move from suffering to freedom, from suffering to liberation. I'm sorry, let's see, let me read that sentence again. He was more concerned with pointing out how to move from suffering to freedom from suffering, from suffering to liberation. Thus, the central doc doctrine of the Theravada tradition is found in the Four Noble Truths. Here the word truce refers to that which is spiritually or therapeutically true and helpful. The Four Noble Truths are 1. Suffering occurs. 2. The cause of suffering is craving. 3. The possibility of ending suffering exists. And 4. The cessation of suffering is attained through the Noble Eightfold Path. Suffering, or dukkha in Pali, here does not refer to physical and empathetic pain, conditions that we inevitably experience. Rather, it recurs to the dissatisfaction and tension we add to our lives through clinging. The first and second noble truths are a call to recognize clearly both our suffering and the many variations of grasping and aversion that make up the clinging, tender lying, the clinging underlying such suffering. 
One reason the Theravada tradition stresses awareness practices is to help us with this recognition. The third and fourth noble truths point to the possibility of ending such clinging-derived suffering and of living with a liberated heart. The experience of being free of clinging-derived suffering is known as Nibbana, or Nirvana in uh, Sanskrit, and is popularly called enlightenment or awakening in English. While the Theravada tradition sometimes describes Nibbana, my uh, screen keeps telling me it's disconnecting. So hopefully it's not skipping too much for you. While the Theravada tradition sometimes describes Nibbana as a form of great happiness or peace, more often it has been defined simply as the complete absence of clinging or craving. The primary reason for this negative definition is that Nibbana is so radically different from what can be described through language is that it is best not to try. Furthermore, the tradition discourages attachments to any particular ideas of enlightenment as well as to pointless philosophies or metaphysical speculate, philosophical or metaphysical speculation. Indeed, part of the brilliance of the Four Noble Truth is that they offer a guide to the spiritual life without the need to adhere to any dogmatic beliefs. Then he talks about the Eightfold Path, which is the, 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 uh, the, the Four Noble Truths describes a set of steps we can take to let go of clinging, and that's the Noble Eightfold Path. And then I want, I'm going to skip over that section. Most of us are familiar with the Eightfold Path because I want to read what he says about a gradual training because you may have heard that a lot and wondered what that, what that meant. A gradual training. The suttas frequently show the Buddha describing a gradual training to cultivate spiritual de- development. This training moves progressively from the cultivation of generosity to ethics to mindfulness practice to concentration to insight and finally to liberation. The gradual training is an expansion of the three categories of the Eightfold Path, with generosity and ethics included in sila, meditation practices in samadhi, and insight and liberation in Panya. So sila's morality, meditation, is under uh, samadhi or concentration, and insight and liberation in wisdom or Panya. Those are the, that's how the Eightfold Path is divided into three. While this gradual training is often presented in a linear fashion, it can also be seen in a non-linear manner as a helpful description of important elements of the spiritual path that different people develop at different times. Westerners who undertake Theravada practice often skip some of the early stages in the progression. Instead, they initially focus on awareness practices 
particularly mindfulness. Although there may be good reasons for this in the West, by starting with mindfulness, we may be bypassing the cultivation of healthy psychological qualities of mind and heart that support its foundation. In addition, by starting with mindfulness practice, we may overlook the fact that both the awakening and awakened heart can find its expression in service to others. Uh, he talks about generosity. Traditional Theravada training begins with sila, or morality and ethics, and the cult of cultivation of generosity, which is dana. In its highest form, the practice of dana is neither motivated from moralistic ideas of right and wrong, nor from possible future rewards. Instead, the intention of this practice is to strengthen our ability to be sensitive and appropriately generous in all situations. As generosity develops, it becomes a strength of inner openness that supports the more challenging practices of mindfulness. As the practice of generosity reveals our clinging and attachments, it helps us to appreciate how the Four Noble Truths apply to our own lives. Through generosity, we connect with others, weakening any tendency toward self-centeredness or self-obsession in our spiritual lives. So, there's quite a bit more, but I think uh, those were some highlights. But he does talk about Theravada practice in, uh, in daily life. There's some other good things, but I'm going to stop there so we have some time to sit together. Just, a, just a, what I think is a good basic uh, essay or talk. It may have been a talk, just talking a little bit about this tradition uh, in the context of all the different Buddhist traditions. So why don't we sit now? We have, we have about six minutes. So just let your body relax. But bring everything right, bring it all inside of you. Feel every part of you coming into this body. Just be with the breath. Be aware of your body. Be aware of it as you feel it relax. As you let go, notice how the body, or if the body changes. Do you immediately feel sleepy? Can you be relaxed and attentive and awake at the same time?
If you can't, you're probably in serious need of sleep, right? Be with each in-breath and out-breath. Hopefully, as you sit and focus on the breath, you'll feel the body relaxing. Your sense doors are open, so you're hearing everything. If you've closed your eyes, that just blocks out some of the visual input that might might be hard uh, make it harder to to settle down so just be with yourself thoughts will continue to arise but there's no need to feed them with your attention just let the thoughts come and go as well And just keep relaxing and letting go.
And each time you notice that you've become distracted from the breath, just be aware of that distraction. And and this is how we see how the condition of our mind all the time can be distracted. So we're practicing to see that and know how to come back. Keep coming back to your breath, no matter how far your mind wanders. And just allow everything to settle. As we come to the end of our 
short practice today. May each one of you be well and contented. May you be safe. May you live in a relaxed environment and have peace and be peace. May everything we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all other living beings. So thank you for being here. We can just all enjoy a rainy morning or whatever we have, whatever weather we have. It's all the same, right? So thank you for being here and I'll see you again on Thursday.